Investment Management Operations is sponsored by MFA. Are you a legal or compliance professional in the alternative asset management industry? Then mark your calendar on May 2nd for MFA's Legal and Compliance New York 2024. This premier one-day event features a program with the industry's top general counsels and chief compliance officers. Attend MFA Legal and Compliance to stay ahead of the curve as you navigate global regulatory and compliance challenges in the alternative asset management space. Learn from top regulators, leading legal professionals, and your peers through insightful panel discussions and candid exchanges. Attendees receive CLE credits for all qualifying sessions. Visit mfa.events to register for MFA Legal and Compliance New York 2024 and explore MFA's full lineup of global conferences. Again, that's mfa.events. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Investment Management Operations. This show explores the inner workings of the most sophisticated institutions in the industry. Through conversations with executives across operations, compliance, legal, and finance, you'll hear how key operating partners run their businesses in an ever-changing and complex investment landscape. You can join our mailing list and access Capital Allocators content at capitalallocators.com. I'm Scott McDonald, and I'm your host. My guest on today's show is Ken Meister. Ken is the founding partner, president, and COO at Evanston Capital Management, a $4.3 billion hedge fund of funds focused on early stage investment managers in complex, innovative strategies. Ken founded Evanston in 2002 and today oversees all business and operations of the firm, plus operational due diligence. Before Evanston, Ken spent time at William Blair, Ameritech Corporation, and Northern Trust. Our conversation covers Ken's path to Evanston, its operational makeup, and the firm's approach to ODD, technology, and communication. We close with Ken's perspective on the hedge fund industry and advice to aspiring fund managers. Please enjoy my conversation with Ken Meister. Ken, it's great to see you. Thank you, Scott. So tell us about your background, your current role. Sure. So my background in asset management, I guess, began in the early 90s, starting out working at a bank, analyzing corporate pension plan performance and manager lineup. Then I moved over and did a plan sponsor on the DB and DC side, again, analyzing managers. That set my career path in terms of understanding what goes into running an asset management organization to 2002, and that's where Evanston Capital was founded. Prior to that, I was actually working in a project at William Blair and their asset management group, evaluating whether or not William Blair wanted to have some type of hedge fund offering. And in pursuing that was talking to different folks. And through those conversations, met David Wagner, who was running the endowment at Northwestern University. Dave relayed to me, hey, I'm thinking about going off and starting an alternative investment shop, and we're going to start with hedge funds. Fortunately for me, I didn't overthink it too much and joined Dave and then Adam Blitz on day one back in early 2002. And that was the beginning of Evanston Capital. And did you have seed capital to get going at that point? We had a little bit of working capital. 
in terms of just running the business. So day one, there was someone that Dave had known for a long time who was a trustee at the university. And I don't want to say just without asking any questions, wrote him a check, but it was similar to that. And Dave actually... It's funny, held on to that check for quite a few months, or I should say I held on to it in my desk drawer as we were deliberating, did we want to have another outside partner? And then we sent out an earnest really to find an investor. And again, some of that goes back to Dave's relationships and a family we knew in Chicago that was willing to invest. So that goes back to 2002. What was that environment like at that time? In terms of the hedge fund space, I think it was certainly a growth phase for the industry. The first eight years of the 2000s before the financial crisis, I would certainly call that a growth phase for the industry, particularly in in hedge fund of funds as well. You saw adoption from institutional investors throughout that first 10-year period, and not as many intermediaries were familiar with the hedge fund universe or how to research, how to access, how to go about selecting hedge fund managers. So, I certainly felt like we and perhaps others had competitive advantage versus today where the playing field certainly has changed. We were fortunate. We got a great anchor investor. They locked up the capital for three years. And then we were just building an asset management business based on the collective experience of Dave, Adam, myself. And then Ryan Cahill had joined us a couple months after we opened the doors and he sat in the CFO role. And so my role was really, how do we build out this business. And again, that was a skill I had honed over the prior 10 years or so. And that's how I ended up in the seat of COO. Turning to the operations at Evanston today, what does that look like? Certainly grown from four people, although we're still, I think, and by my definition, a small boutique. We're 29 people today in terms of how we break that up. I think, you know, I would say we have seven people in fund accounting and operations six people in business development, client service, three in legal and compliance, two sort of what I'd call corporate, and then one dedicated technology person. So that's what operations looks like today. But I would also say what we're doing today is an evolution. But I think a lot of things that we're doing today, we actually implemented back when we started the firm. And I think that was somewhat of a differentiation point and that we always wanted to build from day one an institutional type of organization. Again, because we all came from that background and in terms of, again, building the right accounting team or the activities we're doing in fund accounting, from day one, we're like, we're gonna exactly shadow and mirror our fund administrator. We're gonna use a fund administrator, which back in 2002, not everybody did. From day one, we said, we're going to be SEC registered. We didn't have to be, but we were. So those, I guess, core philosophical beliefs of what an institutional asset management firm should have, we wanted to build those from day one. The service providers that we selected, even though we were small, I mean, we were trying to get recognized names in those spaces. It was never about finding the lowest cost option. It was, you know what? We need to make this an organization that an institution is going to feel comfortable with, not only obviously from the investment side, from the business and operational side. It's fascinating because the term like what does institutional mean for people and people talk about it, but I think it's helpful when you put a definition around it. And maybe one question based on early days is, was it hard to stand things up like that, giving your brand new to the industry, you have some seed capital? Was it hard to build those types of institutional quality relationships because you were new? 
I think the one that might have been more challenging might have been on the fund administration side because you're starting off and going at that time to, you know, the largest hedge fund administrators. That was probably a little bit more difficult. We ended up going with certainly a recognized name, broadly speaking, in the asset management financial services space. I would say their experience in hedge fund administration versus mutual fund administration wasn't as developed, but certainly their name in like the mutual fund administration area was certainly recognized. And then as we grew, I mean, then we changed over to Sitco several years later. That was probably the only one where we were like, who's going to take us from a fund admin side, sub $100 million. When you kind of flip the script back to the manager who you talked to, like any advice for people who were starting out and trying to get into the game? And do you go with the Sitcos of the world? And like, obviously you're not going to be the biggest clients. My advice, I guess, if you were talking to somebody starting off today would be, look, when you launch a fund, I mean, you're launching a business and most people, right, they are going to hopefully have their investment strategy, how they go about managing their fund, their edge, et cetera. That part they probably know, or they certainly should. What they usually don't know is, okay, <laughs> how do I run this business? And what I would say is, it's going to take probably a lot more time and energy getting the business side of things up and running and ironed out over those first 12 months than you probably anticipate. When you unpack that, so what does that mean to you? First of all, everything takes longer than you think it's going to take. You come up with your timeline of when you think you can launch. I would certainly build some cushion into that, but it's the little things. I won't say it's, it's around the fund. Certainly the fund that one is managing, having all the connectivity and your service providers and the plumbing and interfaces, yes. That, depending on the strategy, could take quite a bit of time and exercises and make sure everything's working right. But it's some of the other side of just, okay, you know, I'm running a business. What am I going to do for running of the office and the little things about the management company? And certainly some people outsource that, but you want to probably have somebody on your team that's seen that movie before. There's certainly sensitivities around hiring of non-investment people at the start. That's understandable. But I would also say that have a plan for resources that you may need going forward. Whether or not maybe you hit those milestones on AUM or not, certainly that's a piece of it. But I think you need to have a plan in terms of after three months or six months or nine months or 12 or 18, all those, at what point do you want to add different resources to the non-investment side of the organization? Certainly today, legal and compliance, my instinct is you're probably going to need that sooner than you might anticipate. So it's about being disciplined about like you can start to outsource first and then slowly bring that in-house when you hit those milestones. Is that what you're saying? I think that's fair. We've tended over the past couple of decades, we certainly don't shy away from being a day one investor. And when we perform operational due diligence on those newer funds managers, it's not that we expect everything to be in place day one, but we certainly want to see that they have some really experienced, capable people on the non-investment side and that those people have a plan. That's important to monitor over that first year. Like, are they sticking to that plan? Because it's so easy that you have one person in a CFO or COO role and they're just wearing way too many hats. And so we recognize that. I can say I went through that as well. You just have to be 
thoughtful and just realize, okay, what am I missing because I don't have a specialist in this area or that area? And at the end of the day, again, I'm going back to just having a plan for how you want to add those resources, I think is really important for anybody starting off today. Everything's going to take longer. It's probably going to be, you know, small things that, again, it's not rocket science, but just be prepared for those annoyances that are going to impact the business from the onset. Are there any pillars that you identify? So if you're going into a manager knowing that it's not perfect and it's early stage and you also don't want to have them overbuild too early, is there anything you structurally see as like a must have? Well, I mean, certainly you can understand the outsourcing typically, right? I mean, somebody might start with outsourcing on the compliance side of things. And I think that's acceptable for a period of time. Hopefully that's a known and reputable service provider in that area. The outsourcing of a CFO type role, we have seen that over the years. Not a huge fan of that, maybe for six months or something, but I don't think that's a really smart long-term solution. Obviously, technology, I mean, we still outsource technology today. I think that's very acceptable. Hopefully, right, that organization, same thing reputable, well-known, how one is utilizing that. The other thing I would say, though, is just if you are going to be outsourcing a lot and it's a smaller team, understanding the CFO or COO or who's ever in charge of running the operations of the firm, how that individual interacts and what is the role of the head of the firm, which might be the CIO or the PM, understanding sort of if there is overlap between those two or who really is calling the shots Is the CIO micromanaging things? Are they involved in a lot of business operational decisions? That's something we are sensitive to because I think you want to have a strong, capable individual on the operational side in charge of a lot of those decisions. Certainly totally fair and understandable that they're running those decisions by a CIO, but we really try to ferret out Is the CIO overly involved, which potentially we could create less distinction between the investment and the operational side of the functions. That is something that is important. In my experience, it's always a, you see an indicator of that is you might have like a CIO founder type person, and then you have like the controller and it's like that person that hasn't really been enabled. Is that what you're hinting at? That can be an example where you have perhaps someone in the operations role who certainly has experience, but maybe not enough experience. And that potentially could lead to, again, that you want that individual to be able to make the decisions without being second-guessed, without looking over the shoulder. Or frankly, do they have the stature and personality, this could be simple, but to stand up to do what's right from just an operational standpoint and not be run over by the head of the firm. You probably saw that a little bit more in the first decade of the 2000s. But again, that's something we're very aware of is that operations person, are are they an A player? Are they a B player? Are they got an inflated title? Maybe they're really a controller, but they have a CFO title. That's something we certainly try to recognize. You wear a lot of hats. What's a day in the life for Ken Meister? A day in the life has has changed a lot over 20 years. But today I have really strong functional leaders across accounting, legal and compliance, technology. So most of my time is touching base with the leaders of those functional groups. And then moreover, just spending time with 
our CEO, certainly on a daily basis, whatever the topic of the day is or the issue of the day or you know what we need to be thinking about going forward. So probably a lot more of it for me is thinking forward and trying to think more strategically about what we need, where we need to go. Again, I have really strong, capable partners that are running sort of the day-to-day accounting function, operations, things of that nature. Certainly, there's a number of committees that we have that I'm involved in. And so just making sure we're staying focused and disciplined to what those committees are charged with doing. Keeping an eye still on everything, but not being as in the weeds as one used to be for sure. Is there anything that you're still in the weeds on that you enjoy doing? Definitely. There's things, you know, one is still in the weeds on. We're really proud of our communications that we have with our investors, so our quarterly letters. We have some really good writers on the team, but I don't know if it's just superstition, but every quarterly letter that goes out, I'm like the last read along with one of my partners on that. Communications is something that I think always be on the weeds on. We talked about day one. That was something that was really important to us when we set the firm up in terms of being transparent and communicating really promptly and effectively with our investors. And is it harder these days? We try to put ourselves in our investors' shoes, whatever we do. And again, if Dave Wagner were here, he would say, look, Everybody at this firm is in the client service business because as soon as you pick up the phone, whatever the question might be, whether it's you know investment question, a simple, hey, I need a statement, how we interact and engage, we want that experience to be excellent. And that's sort of an ethos that runs through the organization and our communications, whether it's myself, our CEO, we are really dialed into what we are trying to communicate and how we express that, the timeliness of it, the information. Again, going back to the early days, we always shared from day one who we were investing with. It was never just the lineup of managers A through P. That was rare at that time. It was very rare to actually list the names of the managers, the percentage allocations to those managers. Our quarterly letter good, bad, or ugly, we were going to write something about basically each underlying investment. And we still do. And maybe back to Evanston. So what does your tech stack look like? I would say our tech stack is fairly straightforward. We have one dedicated technologist who's our director of technology, who's now a partner of the firm. At the end of the day, we are what I call knowledge workers. We don't have a trading floor, complex systems or anything like that. We use a lot of off-the-shelf tools, Microsoft tools, been moving over time into Office 365 and Azure platform. Certainly have a back office accounting system that's quarter operations. I mentioned at the onset, we maintain shadow books for all of our funds, have a CRM sort of research system that's deployed across the firm. Additionally, that handles research management for our investment team and the investor relations for our business development client service team. So We don't have a whole lot of custom development, but when we do, it's usually to build integrations between systems or custom reporting. When you actually implement changes, like how do you get adoption in-house to get everybody to kind of agree on, here's the tool? We're sort of a smaller organization, so getting folks to participate or work on a project to evaluate any new capability, we don't have a lot of pushback there. I mean, it's easy to get folks engaged to participate. We'll work closely with outsourced partners for that as well. Each year we put together a tech budget, high level plans for big projects. 
that we anticipate coming. We'll just organize that internally. I mean, this year we are trying out a capability that'll help us automatically aggregate some more information. We'll aggregate as well as file information within our system so people aren't having to take an email or a document and do a bunch of clicks to log that activity. So there's three people working on that. We have our own version of an internal trade system that we built years ago that has gone through a refresh over the last 10 months or so. And again, there's a there's a group there that uses that most intimately and they've been involved along sort of every step. We're a team-based group. I can really say that with full confidence. So if there's some new utility that we want to evaluate, it's not difficult to gather up those people and say, hey, look, because it should make their lives better, more efficient. We're all about trying to be as efficient as possible and to put everything into sort of like a a risk reward framework when we're making decisions. Saving time and filing and the amount of information you have must be fairly sizable. Yes, especially after doing this for 21 years. There's a lot of information there. We're in the data collection business. I mean, we collect so much data, not only on the investment side in terms of exposures and return information, certainly in analytics, but on the ODD side, we are collecting and storing information about the systems, the service providers. I mean, just policies that underlying funds and managers use. Yeah, we are in the huge data collection business. And going back on the trade system, is that kind of a digitization of your own investment process once you've decided that you've made a decision to either redeem, add, subscribe? We call it our trade management system, but you can also just call it a workflow process. When we make a decision, right, we want to subscribe for a fund or redeem or add or whatever it might be, there's a system and it'll, you know, it's going to kick off. I guess I should know there's probably about 18 steps in it today. And obviously people are assigned to those steps. So I'm always step three and signing off on trades. And you can go back and there's documents attached. It also, obviously he's a fund administrator. What's the distinction between the custodian role and fund administrator? Sure. So, I mean, the fund administrator is the sort of official books and records of the fund. So they're striking the net asset value of the fund. They're issuing investor statements. The custodian is actually when the fund wants to go out and purchase another fund, we're instructing our custodian to go out and make that purchase. So it's similar, right? If you want to go and buy a stock, I mean, I'm going to instruct some custodian to go out and hold that security. In essence, that's what the custodian is doing here. I mean, certainly they're just holding a partnership interest but it's held in the name of the custodian. You see that a lot when one has to also, in our business, if there's a line of credit that's used for short-term cash management in terms of you want to subscribe for something and then you're waiting for proceeds for a redemption. But if you're going to have a line of credit, that third-party lender is going to want to have a custodian involved. And that must be beneficial just given the smoothing of cash flows, given the fact that there's wide variability between manager to manager on trade and settlement date. Yeah, it's you have that. And then obviously the subscriptions and redemptions from your investors coming to the fund. But a custodian is going to be involved because should one default, the lender is going to want to have claim to some sort of security or asset. What's your process on ODD? The process 
at a high level is really the same. We sort of affectionately like to call it our business partner evaluation. We always had a separate team that would go in and perform those activities. So that's certainly still the case. Myself, I've been involved in that since day one and sort of led the development of what we're doing there. Over time, you know, we've added dedicated resource to operational due diligence. They've built, I think, a really strong body of knowledge in terms of understanding the different systems, services, capabilities that a fund may select and what might be more applicable given a strategy or the size of an organization. We always wanted to try to avoid operational due diligence just being this, okay, I'm going to come in and I have my checklist. And that's why we called it like a business partner evaluation, because we wanted to work with those managers and also share information. And today, I think that's part and parcel of what we do. Almost all managers say to us at the you know end of a operational due diligence session, please share with us your observations, suggestions. You would never get that in 2002, six, even eight, 10. Now the manager's they're soliciting that information. One could be a little skeptical and say they're just saying that to make you feel good. And maybe occasionally that occurs, but I generally think most really are interested because the fields change so dramatically. And the areas of focus are going to be consistent. So if you're weak in one area, the issue isn't going to go away unless you're jumping up and down about something that is clearly irrelevant, but that's highly unlikely, I would think. Separate team comes in, They go and do their work. We cover full array of operational topics. We do bring in the specialists on our team. For instance, technology. Myself and the other individual at our firm that does operational diligence, we're not technologists. We certainly know enough, but I want our technologists to hear and evaluate because they're plugged into different groups among hedge fund, CTOs, et cetera. And so they'll sit in on that portion of the meeting or from a legal and compliance standpoint, as they go through the offering documents and subscription document, partnership agreement, et cetera, if there's really specific language in there, we're going to have them sort that out with the appropriate individuals at the manager. The financial review is always done by a member of our accounting team. So I call those the specialists and we bring that whole team together prior to going on-site, just, okay, in those interactions, as we go on-site, what else should we bring to the table and be sensitive to? What does that accounting review look like? Yeah, that's a review of audited financial statements. Typically, you know, if the fund's been in existence for over three years, we want to review three years of financial statements. We'll also ask for K-1s and go through a review of the K-1s. Yeah, and there's sort of a standard template report that's put together for that type of review. Obviously, if there's something unique or sort of idiosyncratic to the investment strategy that might maybe throw off some tax sensitivity, effectively connected income, we might dig in a little bit deeper from a tax standpoint. You might see it more in distressed investing. And if if folks, part of it is how we're structured as well in terms of What's the master feeder structure and sort of where are things organized? And then just getting back to the process. So there's a lot of prep work that goes into the operational due diligence review, absorbing all those materials we collect, going through it, fine-tuning sort of the areas. Maybe we need more information. And then there's the on-site, which is probably like a four to five-hour meeting on-site, meeting with those functional leaders and, and groups at the manager's organization. Obviously, we come back from that meeting and 
again, being a smaller team, it's not like, okay, we're going to wait until our next investment committee to sort of download and give a, a thumbs up or thumbs down. It's pretty immediate. We sort of do it independently. Like I'll come back from the meeting and sit down with our CIO and deputy CIO and just give them my quick summary thoughts. I mean, certainly if there's something that's like, hey, there's a big issue here, like we need to put the brakes on this thing. That's going to be probably a phone call on the on the way to the airport saying, like, we ran into some like a buzzsaw here. So what's an example of when things go sideways, unexpected? I think a lot of it, there might be an issue going into that meeting that we're sensitive to. That could be a question around, again, separation of responsibilities or duties or our subjective assessment, how good of a resource do they think the manager has in certain areas? Perhaps it's a background check issue that something came up and we need to unpeel that a layer or two and how they react to it. Again, that interplay between the CIO and the head of operations, we like to see what that interplay is like. Does it seem like a healthy relationship? Does it seem like a relationship that has some intimidation? Does it seem like information is is shared between those two parties? I certainly remember being in a meeting where there was information that the CIO knew about an individual when it came to a background check that the CFO did not know. And when we brought it up, it was, you know, it was just awkward. Or sitting in a meeting where, again, a CIO, you can just tell or sense they had an intimidation element over to the individual running the operational or the business side of things, and that's just not healthy. Or someone's background just doesn't fit with the strategy. Someone who's been a controller at a long, short, simple, fundamental equity shop, all of a sudden is it, you know, a fixed income arbitrage type of organization. It's like apples to oranges. Or just the team just wasn't that good. That's sort of a simple way of saying it, but it's typically be something subjective where it's like, we're just not getting a good feeling here. And will you try to work it out with them and like remediate? Like, hey, we've observed Y and can you do X? We have. I think that takes on different flavors. Going back to when maybe it's a new launch, we're certainly going to say, all right, here's sort of our expectations and we want to be monitoring these following things. It can be a difficult conversation that from an operational due diligence standpoint, we rarely have to spent a lot of time convincing other members of our team when we come back from one of these that we just don't feel good about it. Our investment committee, it's a unanimous decision. So that equates to operational due diligence does have veto power. I can come back and be like, you know what? I'm not comfortable. So no. The way our team works, I mean, we don't typically have to do a ton of convincing or we don't have these, well, no, ODD and the investment team are really butting heads on this and we can't come to an agreement. There might be a day or two where we all want to sleep on it and mull it over, but it never ends up being any sort of confrontational situation. I mean, if we all don't feel really good about allocating money here, it's on behalf of our investors and it's our money. We're eating our own cooking. We're investing in our funds. If I don't feel comfortable putting my own money there, my partners respect that. And what about ongoing? After you make the investment and then at some period of time you go back, what does that exercise look like after you've invested? It looks similar to that initial operational due diligence meeting or the step two that I referenced before. We call that a mid-back office review meeting. And so that happens with each of the managers that, that we're invested with, at least sort of every 
12 months. That's more of an update covering the same functional topics and trying to meet with many of the same people, but without, you know, going back to sort of the early part of the process more like, let's talk about updates that you've made since our last visit. What's a successful partnership look like to you? We sort of evaluate managers. Do they run their business, at least from an operational and business standpoint, like we run our business? So certainly, I mean, being transparent, timely, open, we want good access to people. We're dating ourselves many years ago where, you know, you have those hard stop meetings. You can meet with Scott, but he has a hard stop in 15 minutes. That doesn't make anybody feel really good. So again, are we getting access to the right people? Frankly, are they just timely with all of our requests? If we have a meeting coming up and it's like, we send it out with quite a bit of lead time and we try to really plan our visits. It's not like we give somebody two weeks. I mean, they're usually at least a month out, probably a little bit more. And if we got to poke and prod them, for information to us that's like, wait, this is important for us and our investors. And I hope it's important for you as well, but we don't want to see that sign. Are they engaging with us or do they just want to get through a meeting? I mean, these are all soft elements to everything. But in in this business, we would always call it, there's all the clinical evaluations that one could do. And I would think the clinical evaluations should be, you know, I would say like everybody should be doing about the same clinical evaluations. It's the soft stuff that is going to probably impact the decisions. And that comes from meeting hundreds of managers and doing this for a long time. If you're doing that type of work in far-flung places like Asia and Europe, I mean, does that fundamentally change at all? It shouldn't, but it probably makes it a little bit more challenging. We've never put any restrictions like, okay, we're not going to invest in this country, region, or manager. London is probably relatively more easy than doing something in Asia in terms of conducting due diligence, especially today. So I don't want to say the bar is higher, but in order to conduct that work, it is going to take more effort, time, money, resource. It's not going to inhibit us. I mean, we've had exposure there. Finding you know an emerging markets manager in India or something like that, that's going to be hard. And then you do that and do you feel like, all right, we spent all the energy and resource doing that. Do you almost subconsciously say, oh, yeah, we should do the investment? We never want to feel that way. And I think sometimes that can happen with folks. I don't have, I don't have evidence, but it makes some logical sense. How do you interface with investment staff in that kind of life cycle or interaction? It's totally normal, just given our office dynamic, exchange of information and what's going on. It's almost done in an ad hoc, casual way throughout the day. Certainly, we have our monthly investment committee meeting. We have all the materials, et cetera, but the decisions are known going into that because we're talking about it prior to that formal meeting. Me and Adam Blitz, we're talking pretty constantly, whether it's about the business, the people in the organization, and then just any investment idea. Today, we're doing something they have fast forwarded a little bit because there's a timing element to it. And so we're doing the operation of due diligence now. As we speak, I had one meeting this morning and a couple other this week and next. And that was Adam and I talking about it about a week and a half ago. Like, hey, this thing's coming up. What's the background here? And what should we be sensitive to? Or if there's a manager, the investment team's going on site or the operational team's going on site. Like, hey, what should we be aware of? What have you observed in your communications or more recent meetings? It just organically 
happens. And I, I think that's one of the strengths of our organization, just being this team that's worked together for so long. I can truly say, I, I know we can finish each other's sentences. 80% of the time, I know what's coming out of somebody's mouth and probably vice versa. That's great. What are the skills required for somebody in the operational seat at Evanston? Certainly, there's the functional experience. Most of our accounting team are CPAs. Certainly, we have a strong legal and compliance team. All have law degrees. A couple have worked at very large, reputable law firms. But I go back to whether it's an operational person or investment. The culture at our firm is critically important. There's sort of nowhere to hide in a team of of our size in terms of, you know, are you get a sort of fit in. And if I'm interviewing somebody, it's pretty simple. I mean, our teams, everybody's smart, nice, humble people. And everybody is sort of like a pleaser. Everybody is out there. They want to help in whatever way they can. Nobody's in a silo. So, you know, on the operational team, you're going to roll up your sleeves and you help wherever we sort of need it. Certainly operationally oriented roles. I mean, attention to detail is critically important, good judgment skills. You can't put an exact definition on that, but do people demonstrate, I should say, you know, good judgment. And that that could be something which seems trivial, but it's important. I think we have a lot of smart people. I think each person can probably fill the role of like another quarter or maybe even half person. We give a lot of latitude to people because if they're smart and they're driven and they don't have a big ego, then it's like, okay, let me take on more. Let me demonstrate value. I think that's sort of a characteristic across the team as well. What does the hedge fund industry look like today for you guys? For things to get to our step to full on-site operational due diligence, we perform maybe on average four to six of those each year. Now, there's 200 probably plus meetings that occur prior to getting to operational due diligence. So right now, I think our investment team is very busy meeting with new potential ideas. I don't think there's sort of been a drop-off. Things have really picked up over the past 18 months. I mean, all the standard conferences, hedge fund conferences, emerging manager conferences, those are all back in, in full swing. But from my vantage point, it hasn't changed because we're relatively concentrated in terms of the number of managers that we're allocating to. And turnover is probably in the upper mid-teens or so. So for me, selfishly, it's been pretty consistent, even throughout COVID, because we didn't put a total halt on doing any new allocations. So for me, it hasn't really changed a lot. But I think that's a byproduct of sort of how we invest. It's such a limited number that actually get to that operational due diligence phase. Any advice for someone in a COO seat or maybe somebody looking to get into that role? Any advice for people? You need to build that skill set over time. I think any good COO has to be a strong multitasker. It's just sort of the nature of the of the role, the ability to multitask. You got to be well organized. I'm sure, people probably have different methods or means to do that, but you got to have good delegation skills. I think in that role, everyone's going to have areas of of expertise or things they feel stronger in. I've always been a firm believer of surround yourself with people that you think are smarter than you are. And if they're really good, give them latitude and let them go. And there's a difference between having good delegation skills and just having one's head stuck in the sand and not 
understanding something. I think a good COO needs to do that. But organizational skills, good delegation skills, hiring the right people, and then just forward thinking on everything. If I can add value to our organization, it's trying to just come up with what are the next sort of risks? What are things we need to be concerned about? What are we not thinking about? And part of that is just talking to people. There's a lot of value in doing that. Well, Ken, this has been a great wide-ranging conversation. And we like to wrap up with two questions. And the first one is, what advice would you give to an emerging manager starting a fund about running their business? I think they have to have a really strong COO or CFO, the right experience, certainly with the strategy they're employing, that cultural fit between the two, they got to find someone that they're going to work very well with, uh, have a have a healthy respect between the two roles. The other thing goes back to what we were talking earlier. There's going to be just so many little details that you have to think about and setting the expectations, surrounding yourself with good advisors and getting input from lots of folks in terms of their prior experience. I mean, try to learn and absorb from what others have gone through. I mean, again, setting up the business, running it, when you really step back, it's not rocket science. You need to surround yourself with information and people that can help you through that. Just don't underestimate the amount of work it's going to take to get things up and running. And trying to do it all yourself, you'll probably make yourself crazy. Is there any industry book or resource that you commonly send to people? Yeah, I don't know if there's like a specific book over the last couple of years I've recommended, but topically, sort of a big believer in, you know, understanding sort of the emotional intelligence side of things. I mean, we all know high IQ, high EQ. I'm sort of a big believer in that EQ piece because I've, I just feel like I've been around a lot of smart people, but if they're low on the EQ side, it's, it's rough. (laughs) It's rough. Or you just, you recognize that I think pretty quickly in the world that we all live in, the more EQ and emotional intelligence and sensitivity you can have, the better. So I would just topically say, you know, do yourself a favor. And if you don't really understand that, there's lots of books on emotional intelligence and you should you should definitely pick it up. Great way to close. Well, Ken, thanks for your time. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com, where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time.